daughter, she lived there, but she was born in the U.S., so that makes immigration very interesting. Um, but uh, we do a, a lot of work. I know many of you know, would know Kelly Johnson, who I'm sure has been here uh, numerous times, and um, your church has supported university campus ministry now for many, many years. And so uh, on behalf of UCM, I just want to say thank you for that. We do have a table in the back, as was mentioned, and uh, I have a sign-up list. I send out regular um, newsletters. Sometimes I have videos like this that I post uh, and other things. would love for you to sign up and just keep up to date with what we're doing. Uh, do we by chance have any university students in the house today? All right, we. Oh, I see the. I see those hands too. Come up. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to make you come up. Uh, so one of the things that we're launching here in the fall is um, we're going to actually begin a service on our campuses once a month um, for all post-secondary students uh, in Calgary. So actually, September 13th at the University of Calgary will be our first service, and uh, all students from MRU, from SAIT, from ACAD, if you're a post-secondary student. Um, here in the University of Calgary. We would love for you to come out uh, and to have a service. I mean, one of the things that we're trying to do is begin to introduce students. A lot of times we walk on campus. I remember when I first walked on campus, uh, I felt so lost. I mean, you have this massive campus at, at the University of Calgary just, uh, just down the line. And I, I walk on there, and Kelly wasn't a lot of help. I say, like, what, are you, what am I going to do? And he just laughed at me for getting lost. And uh, he said, you're going to have to kind of find your way. How do I start? He said, you got to figure that out. Listen to God. And so we did prayer walks around the campus. And, and uh, anyhow, you know, it's a, it can be intimidating at first, right? But um, what's amazing is, is just how the Lord, how many Christians there actually are. Sometimes we think that there's hardly any of us out there. And one of the things that we're wanting to do, and we've had students say, is, look, there, there's, we want to have Christian community with other students in the city. So we're launching that September. Come September 13th, uh, the next month it'll be, in October, it'll be at SAIT, November at MRU, in December back at the UFC, uh, and we're going to keep going with that. So anyway, we're excited about what God's doing here in the city, excited about what God's doing in this church. Excited about what God is doing in this church. Amen. Amen. One, of the, uh, one of the words, turn to Exodus chapter 3 if you have your Bible. Uh, one, of the, one of the words that's been stirring in my mind lately is the word imagination. And um, I've been thinking about this kind of in the, in the biblical context and for people of faith. And, and so I want to talk this morning about imagination. Uh, the more I've, I've talked about this, the more I've thought about it. Actually, the more I've seen it uh, with various theologians and people writing about this. But it's such a massive uh, topic for, for us as people of faith. So Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, Now Moses was tending the flock of his father Jethro, his father-in-law, uh, the priests of the Midians, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that the bush was on fire and it did not burn up. And so Moses said, I'll go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And Moses said, here I am. By the way, if God ever calls your name two times, uh, pay attention. You'll notice throughout the scripture, it's a monumental moment when God calls somebody's name twice. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. Aren't you glad uh, for a God who sees our misery? I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the people, my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He's already giving him a picture that when, when this happens, you're going to see people worship God on this mountain. And God will continue to do this with Moses uh, as he, tell, he, like, he will tell him something, tell him to picture something, and say it will happen. Well, this is the word of the Lord, and we can say thanks be to God. We'll try that perhaps one more time because that was really weak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. So there's this old uh, question, which you've probably heard. If a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, uh, does it still make uh, a noise? Does it still make a sound? Uh, there's all kinds of different jokes that have kind of come out of this, uh, out of this question. Um, for, our, for the young people in the room, if a hipster, uh, if, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody, uh, and nobody hears the sound, does the hipster still buy the record? I don't know. Uh, there's, there's another one. I, I like this one. If a Canadian falls in the forest and nobody hears her, does she still apologize? It's really good. Uh, my, my favorite is if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it, my illegal logging business is a success. Um, so what, what this original question is, it's, it's a classic philosophical um, statement of throwing this question out of which we don't really have the answer but we we tend to ponder this question and so i want to propose one of these types of of questions this morning it says if moses had not gone to horeb to the mountain of god would the bush have still burned in other words um was the bush burning and god just decided to come and it was burning, and Moses just happened to stumble upon it. Or was there something else happening? Was, was uh, God intentionally and dramatically trying to get Moses' attention? And so he lit up this, this bush uh, and spoke through this bush to Moses. And I think if we read the text, you get the sense that uh, God knew that Moses was, was in the area. And so he decided to kind of dramatically reveal himself and speak to Moses in this way. I, I think that that's what happened. 
But that begs kind of another question, and that's why would God, uh, why would God speak to Moses, and why would God reveal himself to Moses in this way? Um, if you look throughout history, you look throughout scriptures, you'll see that God manifested himself. God loved to show himself to people, and God loved to speak to people, and God still loves to speak to people. Do you know that God's speaking to you? Some of you say, God doesn't speak to me. God does speak to you. You just haven't learned to recognize his voice yet. But all throughout history, God, as we read the scripture, we see that God would speak to people and God would show himself to people. So the question then is, how did God show himself to people? And how did God speak to people? And it would seem in terms of like God speaking to people that I think God typically spoke into the hearts and minds. He either perhaps spoke audibly to people out loud, or maybe God spoke into the hearts and minds of people throughout history. I tend to think that God spoke into their hearts. We read that and we say, oh, and God spoke to them. Oh, wouldn't that have been nice if God spoke to me that way out loud like he spoke to some of the great saints? But the Bible never actually says that. I think that these people actually had to wrestle to hear, was this God? Was it God speaking? I think they had to wrestle the same way that you and I have to wrestle to hear God's voice. But God typically would speak to them within their hearts. But God also showed himself to people. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, how, how did God show himself to people? And I would argue that as you look back through Scripture, God would reveal himself uh, to people in either like human or angelic form. And I don't think the two are actually that different. Uh, so if you go in, in, into the text, you remember when Jacob was wrestling through the night? And, and the Bible says it continues to call the, the person who Jacob was wrestling with a man. But then Jacob ends up saying, I saw God face to face. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The Bible calls him a man. But then he says, well, actually, it was God I was wrestling with. Then you can think about the three Hebrew boys thrown into the fiery furnace. Um, Crazy, out of his mind, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was just insane, and he was insane after this event as well, by the way. But Nebuchadnezzar, he throws these guys in the furnace, and then he looks, and he says, well, he's confused because he looks in, and it, it says this. Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? He says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Well, that's interesting. A son of the gods, but also says it looks like a, a fourth man. So I think typically when God reveals God's self to humans throughout history, he normally does it in kind of a human-like form. So why, when God reveals himself to Moses here, does he speak and show himself as a burning bush that is not consumed and yet speaking? This is really, really different for God. So why did he do it? You know, Canada, we just had our 151st birthday. That is such a Canadian response, my friends. If we were in the U.S. and I said, hey, and it's, you know, 4th of July, people would be, yeah, in Canada, this happens every time. We just celebrated Canada Day. Crickets, right? Like, we're still Canadian. Um, so 150, 151 years we've been a nation. And for us, thank you. There we go. We're starting to get a little bit more patriotic. 
151 years. So um, for a lot of us, it seems like a long time, right? Yeah, I'm not going to be able to get beyond that now. Every time I say, yeah, uh, it seems like a long time for us, 151 years. But actually, uh, in terms of uh, uh, national history, this is, a, this is a really, we live in a really young country. Um, now, what we have to realize, what God was actually saying to Moses seemed insane. It seemed crazy. And, and the reason is this. If you double Canada's age and then add an additional 100 years, you get not how long uh, the Israelites were a nation. You get how long they were enslaved in Egypt. So for 400 years, this means that grandma and grandpa were slaves, and their grandma and grandpa were slaves, and their grandma and grandpa were slaves, and on and on it goes. So the the Israelites did not have much in terms of of a memory of freedom. For 400 years, these were an enslaved people. You know, the text that we they read from here in Exodus 4, it talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and I think for us, it's, it's easy when we hear, we hear those three names. You know, if you've been in the church, they kind of roll off the tongue, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And for us, it can be tempting to seem like these were kind of distant characters in some fable long ago. And to actually remove them from real life, flesh and blood people who had to wrestle with God and wrestle through faith. But I actually don't think it would be that different for these people who have been enslaved for 400 years. I think for them, it's, it's a similar struggle. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we pray, you know, we pray in the, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we've been praying that way for 400 years. Now, it's true that Moses was an Egyptian for, for a, a time in his life. So he had maybe some kind of memory of freedom living in the palace and, and all of that. Uh, but I think this did not help his cause any since the people that raised him were trying to kill him. Um, so, the, you know, it seemed like an impossible task. God asks Moses to go to Pharaoh and to speak to him and to lead people who have been slaves for 400 years out of Egypt and into freedom. So let me just cut to the chase this morning. So why did God speak then to him through this, through this burning bush? And I think it's actually this. I think that what God was intending to do with Moses was to set him on fire with the fire of God and to speak through him. But as people, we can be pretty resistant when God wants to do this to us. So God found a more willing subject, a bush... And he set the bush on fire and he spoke to that to demonstrate to Moses the possibility of what God could do through him. The question is, can you, can, you know, can you, Moses, hold the picture in your mind of what I want to do? God wanted to light his imagination on fire. But can you hold that picture? You know, just this week, I, I uh, finished a, a book by a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright. He's got this wonderful new book, a biography of the, of the Apostle Paul. And, and Wright was talking about how, he said, you know, Paul had this kind of double job, which was hard. Uh, on the one hand, he had to take people who were not Jewish and get them to think like Jews. He said, because the, the gospel only makes sense when you understand the Jewish story. So he had that on the flip side. He had to take Jewish people who were very familiar with the Jewish story and have them reimagine 
this with new eyes and a new perspective. Like God did something surprising, and, and I have to capture your, your attention with this. And so Wright had said this. He said, you know, uh, Paul's task involves nothing short of the hardest task of all, the conversion of the imagination. But that is what is required if people are to understand where they are uh, and who they are as the family of God. What God wants to do through people is to convert our imaginations and to set our imaginations on fire. And I believe that God wanted to do this with Moses. Now, imagination is an interesting thing, actually, as you you think about it. Um, There's a controversial Canadian figure, works at the University of Toronto, uh, by the name of Jordan Peterson. Uh, How many have heard of Jordan Peterson? Yeah, he is called, for better or for worse probably one of the most influential thinkers of our day. Uh, and so, he's, so I thought, I want to I read, uh, you know, about what, what he's saying. So I picked up his book, 12 Rules um, for Life. I think that's what it's called, 12 Rules for Life. Anyway, it has 12 rules in it. So I know that much. And he, had, he actually wrote this, and it was a really interesting thing. He distinguishes between ideas and facts. And I read that, I thought, you know, I think that's actually helpful for for what we're doing. He says this, an idea is not the same thing as a fact. A fact is something that is dead in and of itself. It has no consciousness, no will to power, no motivation, no actions. There are billions of dead facts. The internet is a graveyard of dead facts. He says this, though, but an idea that grips a person is alive. It wants to express itself, to live in the world. When it manifests an idea, when it manifests itself in a person, it has a strong proclivity to make that person its avatar. It impels that person to act it out. That's what an idea does to a person. So two plus two is a fact. This is most assuredly true. But two plus two is a dead fact. So you can't have that much fun with two plus two. Two plus two can't get you into very much trouble. Two plus two is not risky. It's not dangerous. Ideas are really different, though. Ideas are dangerous. Ideas, they, they tend to have a life of their own. And like Peterson said, they, when you have an idea that kind of enters you, um, it impels you to do something with it, right? But I think maybe Einstein said it best. Einstein had once said this, imagination is more important than intelligence. Well, that's interesting. So what does Einstein mean by this? Because he's surely not downplaying intelligence, right? This is Einstein we're talking about. I mean, he's a genius. I think what he meant was simply this, that if you want to invent something, no matter how smart you are, you have to have an idea first. If you don't have an idea, you're not going to make anything new. So the idea, the imagination comes first and you work out the details later. And I actually believe that imagination is often how faith works. That God sparks something within your heart. God sparks something within a people and he asks you, can you trust me enough with the vision that I've given you, with the thing that I've put into your heart to actually think act upon it and and, and see that it might actually be something from me. And I don't think that working out the details of it are the hardest part. Now, don't get me wrong. Working out the details are hard. But I think the hardest part 
with imagination is actually keeping the idea alive inside of you and not kind of, you know, squelching the fire of that thing within you before you get a chance to get it going. The more that I've become, uh, the more that I've kind of studied this and thought about this whole thing about the burning bush, the more fascinated I've become with it. Um, So God's trying to get Moses' attention here. I think he's trying to set his imagination on fire but it seems as people that we can be quite fire resistant and so what what gets me in this whole story is what actually happens in chapter four okay so chapter four in exodus is where moses is telling god uh, all the reasons why god's picture of freedom is impossible especially through him and and so in in four verse 10 moses said to the lord pardon your servant lord I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Okay, can we pause for one moment and just acknowledge that this is actually quite an eloquent speech for somebody who says they don't have eloquent speech? I mean, you know, pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and of tongue. You're like, what? You don't seem too bad to me, bro. But we digress. So, Let's look, look at this, verse 11. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He, he says, now go, and I will help you speak, and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please send somebody else. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Okay, please recall, let's pause for a moment again. Please recall how God is speaking to Moses here. Still from a burning bush. So Moses is arguing with a speaking bush about God's ability to speak through an unlikely source. And, and, and he said, you know, surely you couldn't, you know, surely here, speaking bush, you couldn't use me. And then it's even more amazing because it says the Lord's anger burned. I mean, it's like a burning bush. Of course, God's anger burned, right? What's crucial for us to understand this morning is, you know, we talk about this whole thing with God trying to um, ignite Moses' imagination and ignite his faith. Um, a key point for us to understand is that imagination will still be at play whether God, whether Moses chooses to embrace God's version of it or not. Imagination will still be important in this story. Because the truth is this, if Moses refused to embrace God's imagination and to embrace the thing that he's trying to do in that, and he refuses to live within the imagination of God, then he and the Israelites will continue to live within the imagination of the Egyptians. And I think we could see this, you know, um, imagination, actually, uh, you see this all throughout the Bible, but not always in a positive way. We understand that God's imagination, God speaks to people. He gives them a picture. Here's what it's going to look like. Now go do it, right? He sparks that idea, sparks that faith within them, tells them to act. But God's imagination is not the only imagination at work within the scriptures. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians to cast down vain imaginations, which exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. In Psalm 36, we read about evil people, and it says they plot evil on their beds. Uh, Micah, he, he picks up on this language in Micah chapter 2. It says, woe to those who plan iniquity and those who plot evil on their beds. 
at morning's light, they carry it up because it's in their power to do so. So what he's saying here, he said, you have evil people. You know what they do? They have imagination too. So they lie awake at night imagining ways to do evil. And then when the morning comes, they carry it out. And this is actually exactly what's happening with the people of Israel at this point of history, at this point in the story. The taskmasters, they go, you know what? They've been slaves for 400 years. But you know what? I was laying awake in bed last night. And I got thinking, what if we require them to make more bricks? And what if we give them less materials to do it with? So the Egyptians here, they're planning out this evil against, uh, against the Israelites. And what God is trying to show Moses is, you know what? It's not only the Egyptians who can have imagination. I can do something in your imagination too, if you would let me. So for us this morning, we are not a people who are in physical slavery the way that the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians. But you know what? There's all kinds of different forms of slavery in our world. And I believe that many of us would be enslaved to maybe what we could call the dominant reality in our society. But maybe that, that, maybe that phrase is too out there, too, you know, lofty. So I call upon the singer-songwriter John Mayer this morning to help us out with what I mean. John Mayer, anybody heard of John Mayer before? Yeah, okay. John Mayer, uh, he's not a Christian, he, but he, you know, he's a popular songwriter. And he once wrote a song, probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. He wrote the song and he's talking about his high school teacher. And he said, uh, welcome to the real world, she said to me condescendingly. Take a seat, take your life, plot it out in black and white. And then he gets to the chorus and he says this, but I want to run through the halls of my high school. I want to scream at the top of my lungs. I just found out there's no such thing as the real world. It's just a lie that you've got to rise above. And Mayer is actually saying something pretty significant here. You know, the truth is this. If you really allow God to ignite your imagination, ignite your faith, you are going to have people tell you you're not living in the real world. As soon as you begin to imagine kingdom of God kinds of things, you will have people, including church people, who will tell you that you need to start living in, in the real world. And I believe that the, this so-called real world is what actually holds many of us in, in slavery. And I have bad news for you. I think that this gets worse with age and not better. Um, you know, when we, when we sense the Lord calling us to be missionaries, uh, to come to Calgary, my, my first thought was, this is not realistic. Um, actually, my first thought was, Calgary's really cold. My second thought was, this is not very realistic. Um, our kids uh, are 8, 10, and uh, 12 at the time, now 13. And I thought, you know what, this is not really the time of life uh, where I want to be raising funds and raising money and being a missionary. You know, we got other we got other things we could this is probably not very probably not very realistic like it's a great idea being a missionary to the academy all these are nice nice thoughts i'm just not sure um we're kind of living in the real real world with this there's a, a writer by the name of jonathan martin 
And he talks about the evil powers in the world, and Paul calls these uh, evil powers principalities and powers. You've probably heard, heard that. And <clears throat> he talks about how they seek to dominate us in our lives. And you know, when you begin to live in the imagination of the principalities and powers, the rulers of the air, you begin to be gripped with fear. This is how they control us. But what Martin says is that this can be difficult to discern because fear usually comes cloaked in the language of responsibility. Let me think about that for a minute. Fear usually comes cloaked in the language of responsibility. The truth is, we don't go around to each other, you know, I, Roy, man, I'm so afraid, I'm so afraid, I don't really think God can do what he says, he says he's going to do, and I'm kind of, I'm scared, I don't really trust God that much. Right? We don't say that to each other, right? We come and shake hands and put on our friendly church smile, and we say, well, I, you know, uh, it's a wonderful, some, we have some wonderful ideas, but I, I need to be a responsible adult. I mean, I have kids, I have a wife, we, you know, we've got we've to be realistic here about what the Lord's asking. We've got bills, you know, all these kinds of things. And I, I actually think we, we call this thing the real world, and for most of us, this is Egypt for us. It holds us back and enslaves us to a certain way of thinking and to believing that the kingdom of God is actually impossible here on earth. The things that Jesus says are possible and tells us to pray for things above to come as they are uh, below. Or the, yes, your kingdom come. I think I kind of reversed what I was saying. But I, you know what I'm talking about. It's in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that the, you know, your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, right? But I think many of us, we actually don't think that that's super possible. And... Here's, here's what I want to say to you, Northwest Family Church. And it, it's this, that what most people call the real world is actually a facade. It's, it's a mirage. And I, like John Mayer, I want to run through the halls of my high school, and I want to run through the halls of our churches, and I want to scream out, there's no such thing as a real world. It's a lie you've got to rise above. With one exception that there is actually something called the real world. It's just not what most people think it is. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And this is what the world, the real world is. But to see it, you have to have your imagination baptized with fire. We need to break out of the world's imagination. We need to have our hearts and our minds set on fire by the Spirit of God. So my wife was recently listening to um, a prayer app. She spends a lot of time in the mornings praying and then uh, listens to this, this one app where it reads the scripture and you go kind of through a, a spiritual exercise of reciting and, and um, ancient practice called Lectio Divina. And she was, uh, the, the person on the podcast was, uh, or the app was reading from John chapter 16. And it really stood out to me that day. Um, and I'll just read the first verse here. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned to joy. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is his death and his resurrection. But his disciples at this point, we know this because we know the end of the story. But I think 
Jesus talking to these guys, I mean, must have seemed really cryptic, right? Like uh, he says, um, just a bit before this, he had told them, in a little while you will see me no more, and then a little, after a little while you will see me. Now, if I came up to you and said, in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me, you'd probably call the men in the white coats, right? It's like, you're going, what on earth are you talking about, man? And Phil's finally lost it. Um, but he's, he's talking about his death and his resurrection. You won't see me. I'm going to die. But then you will see me. I'm going to be raised from the dead. I find verse 20 really fascinating, though, because he says, I tell you, you know, you're going to weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You notice what Jesus is saying here. He's saying there's going to be two reactions to the same event. When I die, Jesus says, you will weep and mourn. And when I die, Jesus says, the world will rejoice. So Jesus' death will bring sorrow to one group and joy to another. Well, you look at that and go, well, how, how can this be? And it all depends on who's shaping your imagination. Because if your imagination is shaped by the world, then Jesus is just another, you know, failed, uh, failed Messiah. So you rejoice when he dies. But if your imagination is shaped by the kingdom of God, then, then uh, you will weep when he dies. So what, what I want to tell you this morning is not to be surprised if when God begins to set your imagination on fire, some people around you won't see the same event the same way that you see it. Because what will cause you joy may cause them sorrow. The same thing, God speaks it to you. It'll cause you joy, it'll cause them sorrow. It'll cause you excitement, it will cause them confusion. It will, you know, it will cause you just to get up early in the morning. It'll cause them anger. Same event, but this, this is often what happens. What you call faith, they may call foolishness. I see no better example of this than in, in Colossians 2.15. This is one of my, my favorite passages of Scripture. Colossians 2.15 is talking about Jesus on the cross. Now look at this. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Okay. You understand that um, any kind of would-be Messiah um, that would rise up, if they took this would-be Messiah and they stripped them of all weapons, they would say, we disarmed you. Uh, And then, you know what they did with Jesus, as they did with so many? They stripped him completely of all of his clothes and hung him naked publicly in front of people, right? That's called making a public spectacle of someone. And they triumphed over him by the cross. This is what the powers would do. They would put you on a cross. They would, you know, make a public spectacle of you to show we have triumphed over you. The only thing is that this passage of Scripture actually says the complete opposite of that. It says that when Jesus was on the cross, hanging, nailed to these pieces of wood, that he disarmed the powers and authorities. And it says that actually, while it looked like they were making a public spectacle of him, this was a part of God's plan. So what God actually did is Jesus made a public spectacle of them. And that they did not triumph over him on the cross. Actually, he triumphed over them on the cross. You have to have some kind of baptized imagination 
to understand this. But this is the question today. Who shapes our imaginations? My friends, this is the real world. Jesus Christ has died. He is risen and he will come again. So I want us today to proclaim that this is the real world. And I want to say with the liberation theologian, Pedro Trigo, he said this, I cannot assign the name reality to what my faith tells me is a distortion of reality. And many times when people tell you you're not living in the real world, they have a distorted view of what the real world actually is. So look again to Jesus Look again to what the scriptures tell you about the kingdom of God. That is the real world. So I just want to say three things to you to challenge you with today. Uh, and, and the first is this. Some of you are, are going through deep struggles in your life. And I wonder this morning, can you imagine what freedom would look like for you? Can you allow God to Put something in your mind, a picture of what it will look like for you to be free. Free from the things that you struggle with, free, you know, whatever those chains that bind you. Allow God to do something to your faith and to your imagination so you can begin to see that the fire of God is still available to touch our imaginations, to change our lives. But can you picture it? I think that the Lord wants us, some of us today, to picture freedom. Um, the second thing is this. Can, can, what picture do you have in your mind for this church? I, I, I love this idea of journey church, that we're going on a journey. But can you, can you picture this place full yet? Can you picture having to come early to get a seat in the third service? Because what the Lord wants to do is, I think, even greater, right? The scriptures talk about him doing exceedingly above and beyond all we could ask or even imagine. But let's let God at least give us an initial imagination. Because I really see this church impacting this city in a significant way. And I believe that our best days are ahead of us. That the Lord, now look, amen. Now, we say that. We honor always the past. The Bible talks about remembrance. Remembrance is a key word within the scripture. We remember. When we say that it's not about forgetting the past, the past is actually what propels us forward because we've seen the faithful hand of God in the past, so we know that God will be faithful again. But the Lord has such great plans for this church and you will, we will impact the city for Jesus. And I think what the, what the Spirit is trying to tell us today is to begin to get that picture in your mind. Do not come here and go, ah, oh, it's a summer crowd. Well, okay, I guess I'll, you know, I'll let the band do their thing. And I'm just going to sit around and, you know, like I'd be energetic if it was, the, if it was you know, the, the youth band, you know, Hillsong United was here and the place was packed out and the lights were going. You No, 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 no. Picture in your mind what God is going to do. When you worship, I would, and I'm not, I don't normally say these kinds of things. When you worship, I want you to picture this place full of saints of God from every tribe and every nation praising God. Because I believe that that's going to happen. And may the Lord ignite our imagination for this. You know, the final thing, the final thing I'll say is this, is, is for our nation. 
uh, I think that many of us, we've had a vision of our, of our nation and we've, we think Canada is, is too far gone, we're too sinful, we've become too secular, we've become too liberal, we've become too this, we've become too that, and really deep within our hearts we think nobody's interested really in the gospel anymore, it's a hard nation uh, to reach for Jesus. So um, I was in the university here just a few weeks ago and I'm sitting at a table of people. I, I work with um, student enrollment, so you have wellness center, people who help counsel students, yeah, which is a, a very large department, student accessibility, all these different people, the, the indigenous center. And so we're, I'm in a breakout session this day, um, and it was not a religious breakout session. This is just something the university's putting on. And, uh, you know, one of the I, th- I think the name of the session was like all Christians um, are foolish and other myths you've heard. I thought, well, this could be interesting. I'm, I need to I need to see what they're saying about Christians. So, so I, I went I went to this in the university, and uh, around the table, it's mainly uh, people in their twenties and thirties, I would say, um, who are working, and they asked the question, "Do you have a faith commitment?" A and this is after they had, had done, you know, some presentation with us. Do you have a faith commitment? And if you do or you don't, what was the influence that led you to that? So around the table, uh, I was the only person who had a faith commitment. And this probably surprises none of us, right? Um, what did surprise me, what did shock me, in fact, was that these 20 and 30-year-olds, they said, you know, I have two, two main reactions, um, almost without exception, I think is you had people who said, well, my parents, their faith was very nominal. They, they kind of went to church, Christmas, Easter, and they told us uh, your faith is like this private little thing you do. If you, you want it, it's fine, whatever, but we're not kind of those people. And then you had a, another group of people, um, probably at least half of the group, that said, well, our parents, and this is what I think of Canada, they said our parents were very skeptical of faith. They... Uh, they were skeptical about the church, and they kind of said, you know, you don't need to be involved in that kind of thing. You know what shocked me, friends, is that I found that these people in their 20s and 30s were skeptical of their parents' skepticism. And they said, I don't know why they didn't allow us to explore these things. And they started talking about religion, and they started using words like beautiful. So we actually find it kind of beautiful. I don't know why they just, they were so skeptical of it. I've actually met some Christian people and they seem like wonderful. I was surprised at that. And so while our nation has gone through a shift and while there is a skepticism, I believe that that skepticism is breaking and you have a generation of people who feel like they missed out. And so I, I'm calling your church and I'm calling churches across Canada to say we are not too far gone. We are not too whatever you want to call it. Our best days are ahead of us and there are a people who are ready for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to have a vision and an imagination again of faith for our nation of what God will do here. We are not too far gone to see revival in our nation. Let's stand together, please. This morning, just, uh, just as, a, as a way of benediction, let's Pastor Roy uh, 
has said that we just want to sing this old, old song. Um, oh Lord, please light the fire that once burned bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love that burns with holy fear. And I just want to encourage us to make this a prayer today. That you'd ask the Lord, Lord, I want your fire. I want you to light my imagination on fire. That we won't just walk out of here and like, oh, that was just an interesting sermon or maybe a boring sermon, whatever. That we'll walk out with that. But you'd actually walk out with your hearts burning with a burden for this church, a burden for the city, and a burden for our nation. So this morning, can we just sing this? Uh, if you know the song, let's sing it as, as a prayer today.